0: The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Spring Seminar, Moods and Medicine, Biblical Hope for Strugglers. When I started to write this book, um, Good Mood, Bad Mood, oh yes, Uh, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, that's the DSM-3, DSM-4, soon to be DSM-5, it is the workbook that uh, anybody in psychology or psychiatry uses to uh, label a diagnosis. It does not contain any information as to how to treat it and it uh, does not offer you any a way to validate any of the disorders by laboratory test. Um, and that's what the DSM was. Somebody asked me what in the world is the acronym. Uh, I tweet and you can find me at Running RunningDoc um, it's R-U-N-N-I-N-G-D-O-C on Twitter and I tweet about biblical counseling and running and life in general at times you can follow me on Facebook at C. Hodges Run. It's C-H-O-D-G-S-R-U-N. I've been running for 43 years. I started running before most of you were born. <laughs> I've been running 30 miles a week up until the last six months, and right now I'm kind of crippled, but I hope to get out this afternoon. Right ankle, right foot problem. Um, and I blog at goodmoodbadmood.com. Goodmoodbadmood.com I have a website there and I blog So I am technically savvy <laughs> I'll tell you two remarkable things about the book uh, One was, um, and I am the envy for two reasons I am the envy of all authors uh, The first one was is that I actually chose the title And I chose the title a long time ago And the publisher liked it That is rare I, I talked to one author whose name will be not said, who tells me that that author has not ever gotten a title picked. So, and, and they've written lots more books than I have. That person has. And then they sent me the cover, and I liked it. And that's really unusual. You know, usually they stick a cover on the book, and the author hates it. But I really did like. The, I really like that cover. So two unusual things about the book. Uh, I started to write that book to, to write a book about bipolar disorder. I, someone came and asked me to speak about bipolar disorder around 10 years ago. I really didn't want to, because I viewed it as a minefield, and and that was because I hadn't exactly worked my way through what in the world I thought about it. And that's, and it's taken me about 10 years to finally work my way all the way through. and come to grips with what I actually think about it there was a one person who wanted to put some of my stuff up on their website and I wouldn't let them and I think they thought that I wasn't a very nice person because I wouldn't but the reason why I wouldn't was because that was 10 years ago and I really hadn't made my mind up entirely what I thought and I didn't want something immortalized forever that I didn't exactly think but anyway so I was gonna write a book a whole book about bipolar disorder and as you already know there's only two chapters in there about bipolar disorder because Nobody would publish a book just about bipolar disorder. They didn't think that there would be enough of you who would buy it. And um, so what it ended up is that I, I, I looked at depression. You know, we could, I could write about mood disorders, write about depression. And what I found out, the, the truth of the matter was, was that the reason why we have so many uh, more diagnoses, uh, diagnoses of bipolar disorder today is because we have so much more... Diagnoses of depression. It's really it's really not a bipolar problem. It is a depression problem All right, let's get going. There's been a surge in diagnosis in Bipolar disorder since 1980. I started practicing medicine in 1975 and when I started practicing medicine there was uh, The annual incidence of manic depression, which is what bipolar disorder was in 1975 was one in a thousand you didn't expect to see any more people with it than that. It was uncommon. It was notable. It really wasn't hard to diagnose because these people were rather, um, uh, they had a, a rather peculiar presentation. I can remember the first patient that I uh, saw. He was a gentleman who was a salesman. He was an inpatient. He hadn't slept in a couple of weeks. That's, that was an important thing. He talked at a hundred miles an hour, sort of like a guy who's given a lecture and knows he's behind and is trying to catch up. are um, all those lawyers and everybody who, you know, they, they tell you all the things about the drug that's supposed to be good. And then, then all of a sudden, you can hear their voice change gears. Y- yes, and then they start telling you that your tongue's going to swell and you're going to die if you take it. You ever, you ever hear those commercials? Lunesta, that's the one. You know, it's a great drug, but your tongue may swell and you may die. Um... <laughs> Anyway, that's how these guys talk, our ladies. Talk, 100 miles an hour. They talk like someone who's afraid if they took a breath that they wouldn't be allowed to finish their sentence, you know? Um, They also um, have... This fellow had very grandiose business plans about what he was going to do, and he was very concerned that we should get him out of the hospital that day because actually what we were doing was holding him up from completing some rather spectacular business deals, which would have enabled him to be a millionaire and buy a Bentley. Um... We saw him a couple of weeks later, which was a couple of weeks later on Lithium, and he was as quiet as a church mouse. He wasn't interested in talking about the business deals that he had talked about earlier and was somewhat embarrassed by it all. Um, He um, um, did go home shortly uh, after that on Lithium, and the main concern of his attending physician was that he would soon quit it and return in a few months back in the same shape that he had been in. That was bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder uh, in 1975. In 1980, at the same time Robert Spitzer was changing the uh, Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders Criteria, from henceforth known as DSM. Uh, when As he was revising what was then the DSM-2 into the DSM-3, they decided to change uh, manic depression into bipolar disorder. Really wasn't much of a conspiracy. They said the reason why they were doing it was so that they could um, um, distinguish manic depression from schizophrenia now to be honest with you I you know it sounds like a great explanation except I never had any trouble telling the difference between someone who had manic depression and someone who had schizophrenia it seemed to me like they were pretty distinctive things but what I did notice when they did it was that they added about four or five more criteria or categories uh, bipolar disorder to the one that they had and they were all just a little bit different we'll talk about that just in a minute and since that time, we've had a huge increase in the number of people who've been so labeled. The question is, is do we have an epidemic of bipolar disorder? Uh, in 1975, it was one percent. Now they're saying it could be anywhere from five to eight percent of the U.S. population have bipolar disorder, uh, depending on who you read. That is a rather spectacularly large. I think it's about a 5,000 to 8,000 percent increase. It would be notable uh, if it were T.B., if it were uh, any other disease, people would note it well uh, probably this came along because of the changing criteria if you change the criteria perhaps it's easier to be labeled with bipolar disorder the um, again the root of the problem is in the diagnosis and treatment of depression as I said in the first hour we changed the way we made the diagnosis of depression and made it far more prevalent and then we also added uh, medication to the mix the real problem is born out of the need to fix people who are struggling with normal sadness these are the people who come to the doctor's office they've seen the a minus a plus commercial where they go from black and white to living color as long as they're taking the medicine but at the end of that the difficulty is that they don't feel better you know and if you then then they get moved on to add on drugs a popular one right now if you watch tv is Abilify uh, which I, which makes me gasp the idea that you would put depressed people on atypical antipsychotics Which have amazing potential for side effects is just strikes me as as it just It's impressive. I guess that's a good way to put it um, the um, Now what are the criteria for? Um, bipolar disorder one That's the old manic depression Uh, And I would tell you this about uh, making this diagnosis of bipolar disorder, it has the same problem. You can read that a lot better than I can. Um, I just wanted to make sure you could actually see it. This is the first one I've had that's been in black and up there it doesn't look so good, but up here it's uh, it's pretty reasonable. Um, The uh, criteria that is used to make bipolar disorder diagnosis is just as subjective as the diagnosis for depression and it carries with it the, all the same problems one of the reasons why it carries with it all the same problems is that you have to have depression in order to get to have bipolar disorder which by definition means that you can have a 90% overdiagnosis right at the at the front end at the thing that is the gatekeeper to get you into the problem now How's manic depression? Uh, what bipolar disorder? What does it look like? Well, the criteria for it includes a period of more than one week of an improved mood, um, uh, and that they are uh, irritable. Yes, I, you know, just as if it were just an improved mood, I guess it would be, uh, it wouldn't be much. But it, that improved mood includes grandiose and delusional thinking about their finances. These people will spend, you know, run thirty thousand dollar bills up on credit cards. Uh, I'm. Uh, been talking to a, a fellow who um, he would go through the restaurant with uh, and give $20 tips to everybody in the restaurant and, because he could well he didn't he couldn't but he thought he could uh, and 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 then before he's done he's asking the uh, the um, the waitress out for a date you know it, it is it is you know just things which are out of normal you know just not normal Uh, Then they they have an irritated inflated sense of self-esteem and a decreased need for sleep these people can stay awake for a week week or more and that generally uh, that that is uh, uh, That is bad. That's bad for them eventually. It'll uh, get them into psychosis Uh, the the irritable and self-esteem things kind of interesting to me uh, I you know there I was I remember being in an office once and seeing a picture and it was a picture of Bruce Willis and Haley Osman and uh, it, the little boy and the, the, the movie was the sixth sense and of course the picture is of the scene where um, Haley Osmond says I see dead people but instead since it was hanging up in this office cubicle uh, what it said was I see stupid people Uh, Some of you are still awake. That's a good thing. Um, When I sit across from people who have bipolar disorder and they're really wound up really good and tight, like one lady who told me that she uh, was working 40 hours a week at night uh, on the third shift as a nurse, that she uh, was going to go to school full-time during the day, and, and she would be up in the middle of the night running the sweeper, driving her husband crazy. And I would sit across from her and tell her, you cannot do this. You cannot work nights. You know, that's, that's a really basic thing for folks who actually have manic depression. You have to stay up during the day. You have to go to bed at night. And, uh, and, when, and when I take care of them, I won't let them work night if I'm, nights if I'm going to take care of them. They can work second ship, but they have to come home and they have to go to bed. And they'll sit across from you and you're telling them this, that they can't go to school full-time, work a full-time job, and still clean the house and do all these kind of things. And they look at you like you're stupid. And and they are very impatient with you because you're just, well, you know, if you were as smart as I was and if you could move as fast as I do, you could do this. That is what they're talking about when it it comes to this sense of self-esteem. They're easily distracted. And, oh, the sleep thing eventually can lead to hallucinations, delusions, and eventually, I think, sleep deprivation psychosis. Um, they're easily distracted hallucinations meaning they see things that aren't there uh, Delusions meaning they think things that are not true. Like I like I can I have the money to buy a uh, a or, or To rent a uh, airplane to fly my brother down for a, a basketball game uh, or I, um, uh, I, I, I I write a proposal to buy the company that I work for uh, and they think that I you know that I think that they should take it seriously. Those are delusions and hallucinations, psychosis. Uh, we'll talk about in a moment when we get down to Tom here in just a second. Uh, they uh, spend money. Uh, yes, they spend money that they don't have. Uh, they can make disastrous sexual or moral choices. Uh, uh, do y'all, y'all, do y'all remember Patty Duke? And do you remember that for a time her name was Patty Duke Aston? Yeah. Do you know who John Aston was? Yeah, he played Gomez in the Adams Family, and they were married. And I think she was uh, young, and everybody kind of scratched their head and wondered why. And it, it is said that she actually was manic at the time uh, at the time she married him. And you would look at it and go, "Maybe, perhaps, a disastrous choice." Um, then mania is followed by depression, and in order to have bipolar disorder, you are generally considered that you have to have a. A uh, episode of depression that follows. Uh, Tom, Tom is a patient uh, that I that you know when I say t- people are a patient, you know what I actually mean. It means that I take three or four of them and I put them in a blender and then I uh, and then I take and I pour them into a mold that I want to use. You know, that I, I, I cherry pick facts, um, and the reason why I do that is because I don't look good in orange or yellow. And you know, it's the HIPAA law or something like that and I, I, you know, and I think guys like me wouldn't live well in prison for one reason or another So I don't want to violate that federal law of confidentiality or whatever it is And so uh, whenever I talk about patients, they really aren't Unless I tell you they are So Tom is a composite Tom is a 30-year-old white male Came to my office after he was in the emergency room He'd been taken there by his family uh, because he'd become involved in a fight at work. Uh, he, uh, Tom absolutely believed that he'd been sent on a mission by God during the Iraq War uh, to uh, uh, do something at the place that he worked, because the place that he worked was involved in a conspiracy against Israel. And Tom had gotten this message off the television. God had spoken to Tom out of the television set. Uh, when he presented to the emergency room, the notable thing was is that this had happened a couple of other times in his life. Now, this wasn't the first time. Uh, he'd lost those two jobs as well. He eventually would lose the job where he worked at this place, uh, too. Um, he, uh, and they, uh, the last two times they had put him in the hospital, which was the old criteria for manic depression. You had to have an episode of mania that required you to be in a hospital to get the diagnosis. And... Um, but this time, the emergency room guy just looked at him and gave him 50 of Seroquel and started him on that, which is uh, atypical antipsychotic that makes people really sleepy. And Tom went home and slept. And actually, by the time I saw him, he was doing doing fairly fairly well. And as long as Tom took his medicine, uh, and most of the time he did, uh, we could maintain him most of the time at about 12.5 milligrams. It was a rather small dose. And whenever he would start winding up, you know, it, he would usually be in my office and he was all excited about doing something and he wanted to quit taking his medicine. But his wife would call and she would send him in and we would just ratchet his dose up for a couple of weeks and then gradually ratchet it down. Um, Tom um, uh, would come to me and want to stop taking his medicine. And, um, and I, I, he's a Christian man. And uh, the second or third time that he came, and this was the third time that he'd lost a job, he was again working and doing, doing well. He, would, he could work second shift, which uh, meant that he could sleep at night. You know that these, these folks, real honest goodness, bipolar disorder, one manic depressives, have to sleep at night. They can't get the diurnal rhythm backwards, or it's just not going to work for them. And he, um, he said he wanted me to wind him off the medicine, and I looked at him and I said, "Fine, I'll do that. But who's going to support your wife and kids when you lose this job? And he thought about it for a moment, and he said okay you're right and he continued to take the medicine Uh, in spite of the fact that he was a little uh, that he was starting to trend toward mania you know it's it's like these folks are not beyond reason and that's an important point later on now how did we get moved from Tom's story to where we're at in bipolar disorder today because I'll bet you money that you guys are seeing all kinds of people who have bipolar disorder the label but don't talk or act anything like Tom is that true or not true Seeing heads shake up and down. Yeah, all kinds of folks carrying the label today who not have had mania. Well, it starts with the birth of modern medicine. And, um, and, it, and it starts with that struggle that I was talking about in the last hour of understanding the pathology at an actual cell level uh, as the, um, in order to diagnose a disease, in order to construct lab tests which enable you to confirm it, and then in order to construct real treatment. And I can tell you that until almost 1900 that, uh, as far as mental disorders was concerned, that things were really pretty hopeless. And and up until the middle of the 1800s, the prevailing theory in medicine was uh, started by Hippocrates, uh, who in 500 BC said that our diseases were caused by humoral imbalances which should be ringing bells for you. It's like, ah, oh, I've, I've heard this someplace before. Um, and we, we had yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. And when those got out of balance, we uh, had disease. And they did things like bleed people in order to get it back into balance, which really wasn't very productive. Yeah, some folks didn't survive. I think it was Benjamin Rush who became the father of American psychiatry. Uh, because uh, Benjamin Rush firmly believed in bleeding people and he bled people so much that some of them died and they didn't do so well, so nobody would come and see him. And, and so he had lots of time on his hands. He was actually a signer of the Declaration of Independence and a godly man, but, uh, but he had so much time, so he just started uh, writing down his observations about uh, people who were considered insane and what he saw them do and, and what he thought about it. And, and for that, he gets tagged with being the father of, a, of American psychiatry So medicine went along like that. It was so bad in the middle of the uh, 1800s that I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who was a physician, not the Supreme Court Justice author, but the physician who said at a meeting of the Massachusetts General Medical Society that uh, the the medical compendium at the time, which included things like taking mercury, uh, was so bad... That, it, that if they took all the medicines that were on the list and threw them in the, in the, in the sea, that it would be uh, far better for the patients and far worse for the fish. That was the state of medicine in the 1800s when William Perkin in 1856, not 1900. In 1856, started as an organic chemist working with coal tar, trying to figure out how to make dye out of coal tar. His first discovery was black dye, which didn't really get him anything because it was no problem to stain or dye things black. There were other things that they could do it with. But when he discovered how to make purple dye, he made himself into a millionaire because up until that time, the reason why only kings and rich people wore purple was because they made purple dye out of snail slime. And and it was a particular snail and you had to get a lot of them and it was very precious and very expensive. And Perkin figured out how to do that from coal tar, and he became a millionaire as a result. And that's the last you hear of him. I'm certain you can find out more if you want to, but that was his contribution to the birth of modern medicine, and he was pretty done. And then comes along Paul Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich is the next guy, and he takes that dye, and he became known for staining just about any kind of tissue you could think of, just because he wanted to look at it. And you know he was, and what he discovered was he and his colleagues was that the cells, human cells, take that dye up, which meant what? That the cells metabolize; that they're they're not just fixed little things. They live and they breathe. And um, he uh, was working at uh, a, an insane asylum in. Berlin, the Charité Insane Asylum in Berlin, and he, um, he started staining the secretions of the people who were inmates there. And all of them were considered to be insane by, those, by the standards of the day. And what he found out was that that wasn't true at all. What was true when he stained their secretions was that half of them had an infectious disease, And that infectious infectious disease attacked their brains and one of the symptoms of the attack on their brain was behavior which looked like insanity. They didn't have a mental disorder. They had an infectious disease. Of course, that infectious disease was syphilis and it was tertiary syphilis which caused the trouble. Of that, Perkins said... Perkins said, it should be possible to find artificial substances which are really curative for certain diseases, not merely palliatives, palliatives acting favorably on one or another symptom. A palliative thing is something that just makes you feel better. And, and, and what Perkin was saying is that, good grief, we ought to be able to figure out how to cure something as opposed to just making people feel better that was what he said and he went on to work on it and in 1909 on his 606th try Ehrlich spent the next 50 years or so working with arsenic trying to figure out how to poison spirochetes without poisoning patients and uh, on the 606th try he discovered or he manufactured the drug which came to be known as salversan, which was the first arsenical and was the first treatment for syphilis that worked, actually did something. And for that he got the Nobel Prize. It's very much like, I don't know if you saw the movie uh, I Am Legend with uh, Will Smith. It, it, yes, and uh, he was trying to discover what to do about the virus that was mutating humans and turning them into uh, monsters or whatever. And it was on either the 11th or the 1800th try. And, of course, that was, a, that was a playback to Ehrlich. You know, Ehrlich. They used to call the drug number 606. What Ehrlich did when he did that was set medicine out on a, um, a scientific basis for the first time in the history of medicine, you know, the, the idea that we could identify, describe, and then uh, manufacture treatments that would change the course of human life, cure disease. And, and, and it was all based out on the idea that I'm going to look at this problem or this do- disorder based on pathology. And I would tell you that with that regard, truth is never an enemy, in the pursuit or understanding the cure of disease. Sometimes I have people come up and say, well, what if, if such and such disorder turns out to be genetic? And my, my response to that is, well, I, I, you know, I, I, that doesn't worry me one bit. You know, the real honest-to-goodness fact is, is not a problem, either to medicine or to biblical counseling. But I can tell you this theory, on the other hand, can be an amazing disadvantage. And unfortunately even though medicine, medicine actually continued to march on up until the era of Prozac in a, in a factual direction, and still does for the most part. Um, but uh, Sigmund Freud reached out, grabbed psychiatry, and turned it uh, into the realm of theory. And by 1950, between him and Adolf Meyer, uh, psychiatry was in absolute dis- disarray. And out of that came uh, the drive uh, to um, standardize psychiatric terms and descriptions of disease. In 1950, before the advent of the DSM, uh, whatever you had was pretty much up to whomever you talked to. And uh, there were various, all kinds of descriptions for whatever emotional problem that you struggled with. Uh, There was a famous study done in which they sent actors into mental hospitals to act like they were um, struggling with uh, a mental disorder, and most all of them were hospitalized uh, by those and by the hospitals that they went to, and were labeled with the diseases. Uh, you know, the the psychiatry at the time was just just in chaos. And uh, in 1950, the, uh, they uh, they tried to standardize their their forms and bring order out of that out of that chaos. And then in the um, third revision in 1980 bipolar disorder was added in the place of manic depression and then in 1988 Prozac was launched and I put those two things together as to why right now we're sitting in the middle of uh, epidemic of bipolar disorder they changed the criteria and then we introduced a drug that it does have a profound effect on on people with depression now what are the categories of bipolar disorder Okay. Bipolar disorder one is the old manic depression. Uh, now, i tell you this about all these categories. The interesting things to me is, is that I have yet to have a person who comes into counseling or, or as a, a patient, and, I, and they tell me that they're bipolar, and I ask them, well, which kind? Uh, you know, I, I have yet to have one ever tell me which kind they, they have. You know, universally, it, it is not explained to them. So people who have bipolar disorder 2 think that they have the same thing as the person who has manic depression, and and I'll tell you, they don't. You know, it will be two entirely different things. So bipolar disorder 1 is the old manic depression. Bipolar disorder 2 is depression, which has not improved, and which is supposed to have episodes called hypomania, which look a little like mania but aren't quite. And we'll talk what those criteria about the hypomania is in just a moment. Then there's cyclothymia. And in that, you don't get too depressed and you don't get too happy either. You just sort of warble back and forth between the two. And then there's depression with a family history of bipolar disorder. That category used to be depression with a family history of mania. If you had depression and you had a family member who had mania or bipolar disorder one, then you might be bipolar. Now they just say bipolar disorder which then means that you can have someone in bipolar disorder too, or or even better, bipolar disorder not otherwise specified, which we'll get to in just a second, and you could be considered bipolar. Then there are folks who have mania alone. Whenever I see people with mania, uh, you know, I look at that, and I go, this is still not normal. It may be bipolar disorder, it may not, but it's not normal. And then, finally, there's bipolar disorder not otherwise specified. I worked at a trucking company when I was in college, And that's a trucking term. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, I was a billing clerk. And it was 2,000 pounds of nuts and bolts, NOS. Yeah, they're not going to tell you how big the nuts and bolts are. They aren't going to tell you what the threads are like. They're not going to tell you what the nuts are like or what the size are. They're just going to tell you 2,000 pounds of nuts and bolts, not otherwise specified. Now, imagine what psychiatry does with bipolar disorder, not otherwise specified. Yes, it becomes you know amazing latitude to either you know put people in, to put people in this category whom you may be trying to treat for depression and who do not improve, and that generally I think is at the, is at the base of it. People who have depression but do not improve. Uh, I got behind i 'm sorry, but that's in your notes, so I don't have to apologize too much. all right the um, DS, with the DSM-3 came a couple of important changes uh, with regard to bipolar disorder, too. You no longer had to have mania, which, and then you also didn't have to be hospitalized in order to get the label. And, you know, that these things happened at the same time. The normal and disordered sadness thing and this, I think, aren't an accident, and they, they are parallel if If you as with depression, if you limited the diagnosis of major depression to people who uh, have disordered sadness versus normal sadness, then you have a very small group. If you did the same thing with bipolar disorder, then the thing that set it off was mania, mania which is distinctive. Um, I always like to say with regard to psychiatry that the only real things in psychiatry are Delusions, hallucinations, and psychosis. Think about it, you guys. Don't get it, do you? Mm-hmm. No, that's why I don't tell jokes. <laughs> delusions, psychosis, and hallucinations are not real. And so, but if you look at the diagnoses in the DSM-4, DSM-5 now, the things that actually strike me as most likely to be real disease are things that include delusions hallucinations and psychosis schizophrenia i look at that and i say there is something wrong with the person's brain uh, manic depression one i look at that and i say there's there's there could be something wrong with the person's brain as long as they're not taking drugs um, that's a, another category uh, when i mean drugs i mean cocaine and marijuana and things like that all things which are uh, which change the diagnosis so um the criteria for bipolar disorder 2 are less restrictive. Uh, you, do not, you, you only have to have a depressive episode. You have to have at least one hypomanic episode, and you can't have had mania. You know, it's like that kicks you out of the bipolar 2 category. Then, the symptoms are not better accounted for by another disorder. Um, I, I talked with a lady uh, this week, who uh, came in and told me that she was on That she had ADHD and bipolar disorder Both of them Which my understanding You're not supposed to do that You, you know, it's like you, I mean, you're not supposed to make diagnoses like that You know, it's like it, it just doesn't and, and then she was on an amphetamine uh, Vivance, And she was taking um, um, Sertraline And she was taking Lamictal and out of those three drugs, the only thing that anybody who has bipolar disorder ought to be taking is Lamictal. You know, people who have bipolar disorder should not be taking an amphetamine derivative because it's, it was likely to make them manic. And they shouldn't be taking uh, the uh, SSRI antidepressants because it is likely to make them Manic. You know, and I look at this and I go, what the real problem is with depression and what the real problem is with bipolar disorders, we have all kinds of people making these diagnoses who, one, either do not know what the criteria are or, two, are not abiding by them. You know, and it just becomes whatever the person thinks at the time the patient walks in. So, get off my soapbox here. Um, The uh, symptoms are supposed to cause some clinical distress or social impairment, but certainly not to the level that mania does. The key difference between bipolar disorder 1 and 2 is the difference between mania and hypomania. Now, what is hypomania? Hypomania is a period of persistently elevated, expansive or irritable mood lasting four days different than their non-depressed mood. During that period, they need to have three of the four following things. They need to have an inflated self-esteem or grandiosity. They, um, they also have a decreased need for sleep, but they, it's not like they're staying up all night. It's they're sleeping three to four hours at a time. They can be um, more talkative than usual and feel pressured to keep talking. They can have flight of ideas uh, and, and, the, and the feeling that their thoughts are racing. They can complain of being distractible and have an increase in goal-directed activity. In other words, they go to work and they get more work done. Uh, They go places and they seem to have more fun while they do it. And it's supposed to last four days. The downside is is that they too uh, can be uh, distractible and they can also get involved in spending sprees and things like that. But... Uh, generally they, they do not have psychosis They do not have hallucinations And they don't have delusions They don't reach the level of mania This is supposed to represent a change in function That is observable by others And But again it's not supposed to be severe enough to mark To have marked impairment They don't have to be in the hospital And they don't have psychosis And that is the dividing line The dividing line for bipolar disorder 1 and 2 is between mania and hypomania. Now, there is an important thing to keep in mind, and that is that um, hypomanic episodes are caused by SSRI antidepressants. That if you look at the description of hypomania, and then you read the side effect profile of Zoloft, Sertraline, Cymbalta, Lexapro, all of these SSRI and SSNRI antidepressants, uh, fi- you will find the symptoms of hypomania. And just about everybody who's depressed and doesn't get better is taking one of them. So, you know, the question is, I, what I say about this is that instead of treating an, a new disease, what we're probably doing is treating the side effects of a drugs used to treat an old one. Which then, you know, all of this starts to fit in together, you know, um, with regard to treating that ninety percent of people who really are struggling with normal, normal sadness. Now, how can we help folks who struggle like this? Well, here we come with another blended case study. Uh, it was uh, uh, the first person that I remember seeing who had bipolar disorder too. Was a young mother. It was in nineteen ninety four. She was anxious and depressed, mildly, but she was seeing me for another problem. But you know, and you're a physician; you always go through all the medicines somebody's taking, and you try to find out all the problems that they have. And um, what I found out was that. She was being. Tre- she said that she was bipolar, and so I started talking to her about bipolar disorder. And you know, pretty soon I knew she didn't have bipolar one. She didn't meet any of the criteria. had Never had mania. And then it was kind of remarkable because she was taking an antidepressant and an anti-epileptic drug uh, like Depakote um, that she was being prescribed by a psychiatrist. Her life problems included that she had been abandoned by the father of her two sons. She was working a full-time job in order to try to support her family. Then she would come home at night and try to be a mother, full-time mother to these two children. Both of her children were carrying a diagnosis of ADHD, and both were on uh, an amphetamine-derivative drug. Um, She struggled. She had no help, no encouragement, no prospects, and no hope that was what this lady was looking at she had started out like most in her family physician's office on an antidepressant and when that failed to help her feel better about the shape that her life was in then she was off to a psychiatrist and two and three other drugs and the problem at the time i saw her was is that she didn't feel any better then than she felt at the time she started that was the issue the medicine that she was taking was not making her feel better the solution to all this is the same as that it always has been in medicine. We need to make better diagnoses based on the most solid factual evidence we can make about disease, which is pathology. I, it's, it starts by recognizing that the diagnosis of bipolar disorder is just as confused today as the diagnosis of depression is, and that disordered sadness disordered sadness is the key to understanding depression and Mania and hypomania is the key to understanding bipolar disorder in the absence of mania The bipolar 2 label has no more validity than the label of depression does in the absence of disordered sadness and I can tell you uh, Uh, We used to divide people out on this bipolar thing based on full-blown mania, and it was the tool that we used to make the diagnosis certain. And without that tool, without the idea that you're going to limit bipolar disorder to people who have mania, then you're back stuck in a a subjective observational um, uh, situation. I would say that the first thing to do to help people who have bipolar disorder, too, is to deal with normal sadness, grieving due to loss. I think that's what the young mother needed. You know, the young mother had lost a lot, hadn't she? She lost her husband. She lost the privilege of having a normal life, uh, raising her sons. Um, She had lost having two sons that she could deal with their discipline issues. Um, uh, you know she was struggling with two children who were uh, in trouble at school and were on medication for it you know I, I think the thing the best thing that we can do to reduce the number of bipolar disorder do- diagnoses today is to deal with sadness due to loss. All of these uh, aspects of biblical counseling all the aspects of biblical counseling come to bear on this situation. I can tell you that um, that People who struggle with uh, depression, uh, that, that is normal sadness, treated with antidepressants, and those who have the bipolar disorder 2 label uh, need to hear about what the Bible has to say about sadness and sorrow and loss and anger and fear and worry and bitterness and self-orientation and idolatry. They need to hear about all those things, things that are uh, you know, in the tool bag of biblical counseling, And then they need to hear how to deal with them by grace and hope and repentance and faith and sanctification and salvation and perseverance. All those areas need to be pursued. Those are just the the basic areas of biblical counseling. The question always arises uh, with regard to responsibility for behavior um, for um, people who have bipolar disorder 1, manic depression. You know, the folks who... um, Make the disastrous sexual choices and make the disastrous final choice uh, financial choices And I you know, I I listened to a fellow speak about it and it sort of settled it out for me uh, Ed Welch was talking about this in at the CCEF conference in 2011 in Louisville I didn't go I just got the the, the stick and listened and he was talking about a bipolar uh, manic depression one patient And the story went this way: the uh, the patient uh, ten years earlier, uh, it was a couple, uh, and uh, he uh, developed mania, committed adultery, and they while he was manic and they separated. And this had happened ten years earlier, and the wife had never divorced her husband. And after 10 years, decided that she wanted to reconcile with him, but really wanted to talk to somebody who knew something about it before she did. And so the wife and husband came to see Ed. And in the first session, this fellow told Ed that he believed that the reason why he had committed adultery was because of his mania. Now, what do you think Ed said? (laughs) Uh, it's like he, I, it, it, he, as I was, I remember listening, and he said, "Well, where does sin come from? Where does it come from?" Yeah, it comes right out of our hearts. And Welch told the man, "No, uh, no, he, he, you chose to commit that sin." Uh, he said, I, "I wouldn't say that your mania didn't make it easier for you to be someplace to choose it, but you still chose it." And he said that the fellow thought about it for a while, and then as counseling went on, uh, agreed. He agreed that, yes, you know, this was something he had chosen to do. And um, so the couple reconciled and um, uh, moved back in together. And within a couple of months, he had another manic episode, kaboom. And, um, but this time, uh, he was, uh, the, the church that he was in had people who were around him while it was going on. And keeping track of him and helping him, and uh, during the next this episode of mania, he did not choose to commit adultery. So Welch's point was is that that the, the folks who face this do have the ability to make choices, and that they are responsible for them. All right, now we get to the issue of medication for bipolar disorder. Um, and I would tell you this, for a patient in, with bipolar disorder one um, who has had uh, two or more episodes of mania, that uh, it, it is likely going to be in their best interest to continue uh, to take the, the medicine that, is, that they tolerate the best and does the best to keep the, the, the mania from returning. Uh, I would tell you of the medications that I have prescribed for people who have this, I've always have viewed lithium to be the best drug. And I still view it to be the best drug because uh, if you look at the statistics of it, uh, people who have mania and manic depression, uh, the incidence of suicide declines uh, in people who take lithium as opposed to Depakote and uh, the atypical antipsychotics, the incidence of suicide actually increases. And I can tell you this about the atypical antipsychotics. Uh, although I do prescribe them I have that one f- Tom on Seroquel uh, The atypical antipsychotics uh, and the uh, anti-epileptic drugs If you take them for any reason not connected to mania or bipolar disorder If you just take them for any reason there is an observable increase in suicidal thinking And um, and suicide attempts period So you know you have to balance that off So of the drugs I suppose I still like lithium the best. I talked to a Canadian physician in February And his response was That's their, that's their drug of choice First line up And the reason why it's the least expensive uh, in, up, in, up in Canada um, Now uh, The bipolar disorder One person who's only had one episode I can tell you this That the odds are That he, they're going to quit their medicine uh, It's just a matter of when Um, And the reason why they will quit it is because after they get over the episode uh, They'll feel good and taking the medicine the medicine doesn't make them feel particularly good And it's inconvenient expensive. They do not want to take it. It has side effects And most of them will quit And 30 to 50 percent of the time they're right Yes, that's the that's the other part of it if you look at all people who have episodes which are either psychotic or manic, first-time episodes have never had one before in their lifetime. 30% of the time, maybe as high as 50%, depending on whose statistics you look look at, they will never have another episode in their lifetime. So it really is kind of uh, dicey in a way to look at someone and say, you have to take an expensive, side-effect-laden medicine for the rest of your life because you had one episode. The other kind of tricky aspect to it is marijuana and drugs. Didn't I just read that you guys are being, going to be able to buy marijuana out of vending machines here in California soon? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> the, uh, we'll talk about that later. The, uh, <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I can tell you that people who d- smoke large amounts of marijuana uh, are certainly subject to uh, a more a higher incidence of schizophrenia And I would not be in the least amazed if it doesn't have an effect on bipolar disorder as well And certainly the uh, amphetamine derivative one of the favorite drugs right now for college students to overdose on is Adderall Yeah, Adderall uh you know they they all get themselves declared to have a d h d and they uh they they 're taking Adderall because they can stay up later and study longer um, the um, and it it oven by itself may cause people to have uh, uh manic episodes as 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 a side effect so you have to sort that aspect has to get sorted out so what I usually do with people who are first timers who've had, who have bipolar disorder one and have real honest-to-goodness, easily identifiable manias, I say, let's make a deal. You have to take this for six months. You perhaps should take it for a year. At the end of that time, in the company of your friends, and with people standing around you who love you, we'll get the psychiatrist to wind you off of it slowly, and we'll see how you do, which is a whole lot better than them just up and dumping it, you know, three months out, and then you waiting around to see if they're going to have a second episode or not. So that's generally how I try to negotiate with them now. I then there's the other side of it and I can tell you this too I've had several people who will come up and tell me look. I was labeled as bipolar I was labeled as having manic depression the doctor told me I'd take the rest of the medicine for the rest of my life I quit and that was 20 years ago I've never had another problem since I've had several people who will come up and tell me that I can also tell you That I've had a lot of people like Tom You know this is their second or third time to the rodeo they you know they quit their medicine and in within months they're back in the same kind of trouble they were in these are manic depressive ones and for those people I generally will counsel and encourage them to do what I consider to be a Christian responsible thing and that is keep taking your medicine if you know this is going to happen to you you need to keep taking your medicine so that's bipolar disorder one now what do I think about medicine for bipolar disorder two? I think that the benefit of medication for bipolar disorder to individuals who've never had mania is subject to question. I am concerned about the increased risk associated with suicide in all of the drugs that get used to treat people with bipolar disorder too. Every last one of them has an increased risk of suicide. And I view the benefit as being marginal and the side effects as being huge. So I, you know, I look at bipolar disorder too, people who have never had mania. And I say I, I'm not real convinced that they would benefit very much from taking the medicine. I never make taking medicine an issue in counseling. You know, I, I always try to tell people that if you're here today and you think it's your God-given call to get your neighbor's kids off medicine, uh, that they, you have an idol of the heart problem. There is something wrong here. The, the The first goal for us in in biblical counseling is to is first to glorify God with our lives, and then help counselees do. same thing and I can tell you as I told someone at the break that most of the people who come in that I counsel are already on medicine and generally it is no impediment for me to counsel them for them to grow and change and eventually grow and change in a way that they will not need to take the medicine but I don't make that an issue and I would encourage you not to do so either it's not your job to tell people either to start or stop uh, taking medicine Uh, I uh, always tell people that I send anybody who comes in and is taking medication and who tells me they want to stop, I send them back to the doctor who prescribed it. And so should you as a a biblical counselor. The reason why I do that is because I don't view it as ethical for me as a physician to manage somebody else's prescription. I think that the doctor who started it should be the one who Who changes it and should be integrally involved in the process because they know something about it that I don't. They've seen the patient from a different viewpoint. So keep that in mind. Um, But I can tell you this that in either case, as I said, the issue, the the medicine is not the issue uh, in. as far as far as counseling these people and the primary goal course of biblical counseling is 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 for the counselee to be willing to say I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe and I believe that the greatest benefit the greatest benefit to those with mood disorders is to be found you know, if you want to help people with bipolar disorder too, and if you want to help folks with depression, the greatest area the greatest area to make the most ground is to find those 90% with normal sadness and to deal with it from a biblical viewpoint. All right, what questions do you have? We have time for questions now. About bipolar disorder or about depression? Yes. Okay. Is there a, a common demographic, age, distribution, and sex for... Um, the incidence of and you're talking about bipolar disorder, yeah. usually uh, young um, adults is the most common. I think men outnumber women in the bipolar disorder one category in the manic depressive category. I would grant you that. I'll bet that men the women outnumber men in the bipolar disorder two category because women outnumber men in depression. Um, as far as diagnosis and treatment is concerned. So that's what I know about that. Yes, uh, nobody knows. Uh, nobody, know, you know, we don't understand the actual underlying pathology of bipolar disorder, one. And since we don't understand it, uh, we don't know if the uh, drugs themselves cause changes in the brain that renders them stuck with this for the rest of their lives. I suspect it's probably more likely that the drug uh, is... Um, Facilitative as opposed to causative, that it uh, that will bring about episodes as opposed to uh, actually changing the structure of the brain and causing it, but that 's just my opinion, and uh, again we don 't know the pathology, so the question is still remains to be answered all right, over here, yes, and i 'll look over here next so yes uh, it, uh, the question I think is. Um, the difference between saved and unsaved and the susceptibility of the unsaved to uh, demon influence uh, with regard to the um, uh, depression uh, or other mental disorders. Is that right? Uh, actually, there has been uh, um, a... Um, oh, boy, it's going to slip out of my head here. Give me just a second. The... Um, oh, yes, yes, study. Uh, and it looked at the incidence of depression in individuals born before 1950 and those born after, which, you know, the study was done in 1990 because it's getting kind of hard to find a good large group of people born before 1950 for obvious reasons. Um, and what, what they found in the study was this, and it was interesting and it's in the book. The, um. The people born before 1950 had an incidence of depression of about five percent, and the people born after 1950 had a 25 percent. Ha- and the difference and, and this was in situations connected like with losing a job, if a man lost a job in my dad's generation, they were likely to say that there is a God, he will take care of me, things will work out, will survive. The person born today has only to say that the government will take care of me which is a really good reason to be depressed when you think about it. (laughs) So, um, um, and what we've seen is an earthquake shift in our society's um, view of Christianity. And, you know, so the ability to cope with loss is directly connected, as far as I'm concerned, with the ability to understand that there is a sovereign God and He loves me, and that He really does intend to work this out for my good, versus folks who have absolutely no uh, connection to that. So, and yes, I think they they have significant and amazing struggles. Um, Always keep in mind that the only reason why we can do any different than them is grace. You know, it's the indwelling Holy Spirit that makes us able. And they do not have that. And so we should expect that they would do worse. All right, I got to go over this way first. All right, here. And I'll go here then, and then I'll start all the way over here. Past trauma, does past trauma trigger these? Okay, now tell me what kind of trauma. Okay, emotional trauma. And these uh, being... Any of them um, I would say that um, Past trauma does not change brain structure uh, um, So It is not likely that you will Develop a disease It's not like catching um, I was reading a really interesting article About a guy who got herpes encephalitis um, you know, um, And a meningitis And it actually left two huge holes in his brain where his hippocampi were on both sides and where parts of his medial temporal lobe are. And that man cannot remember anything, period, prior to about 1950. He can remember things before 1950. After 1950, if you come in and say, Hi, I'm coming to get you in five minutes and walk out the door and come back in, he doesn't remember anything. So infectious diseases... Uh, actual physical trauma to the brain can certainly change how the brain functions and our abilities. Uh, Seeing bad things, I I would say not nearly as much. Um, There are actually really good studies about neuroplasticity, which um, a, a good book to read is Train Your Mind, Train Your Brain, Train Your Mind. And uh, I think it's written by Sharon Begley, who's a, who's a really good science writer. And, uh, but you have to understand that she's a Buddhist. Okay? <laughs> keep, keep this in mind. <laughs> but the, scientifics, the studies are scientific, and the brain scans are brain scans. And what they, what they say in the book is that if you look at someone who uh, plays the violin, yes, plays the violin, that the spot, yes, the spot in their brain for their left fingers will be huge compared to the spot on the other side for their other fingers. And that's because they use them a lot. And that, um, that practice makes it better. And that actually they, can, they don't have to play the violin. They can just move their fingers and it will eventually do it. And then eventually they can just think about it they can just think about playing the violin and it'll make their brain light up and it'll make that part of their brain bigger now the reason why I say that is because what we think about makes a big difference about how, how our brains actually function and, and our brains are plastic in that regard so that if you spend your whole life thinking about something that bad that really happened to you a long time ago you probably will affect how your, your brain operates but it doesn't make you have a disease it just means that you're training your brain to do something. All right? Okay, next question, over here. Yes, they're part of mania. Yep. Yes. And, I, and that is why I'm willing to say that uh, bipolar disorder, one, is a disease. It's because they, you know, you're looking at someone and what do you, what do you say when somebody's sitting there and they, and they tell you they're G- Jesus Christ or John the Baptist or they think that they own 38th Street and it's 30 miles long? Well, there's nothing right about that, is there? You know, either they're making up a real whopper and I doubt it Or there is something not functioning normal in their brain So that's why I'm willing to to go that far Now I have to go all the way over here, I'm sorry Yes, yes Um, Yes, I disagree with him uh, you know, I, I really, I think, um, I, you know, obviously have all the respect in the world for Jay Adams. Uh, we wouldn't be here talking if, if Jay hadn't stood up and said what he said. Um, but I, uh, I disagree with his statements about schizophrenia, and the reason why is because of pathology. The, uh, if you look at uh, teenagers who develop schizophrenia and you follow their brains on brain scans over serial time, like five years, what you find is that their frontal lobes are shrinking. And what we think, but we're not entirely certain of Think is about the best thing we can say right at the moment Is that perhaps it's uh, an autoimmune disorder That occurs due to a viral infection And it actually is killing their brains And um, so uh, that's why I disagree with him it's, it, And um, at the time he wrote that he, We didn't have those scans uh, and, and no way to know So his observation at the time would have been very operational uh, But not as much now and and then I go over and look at mania and I say ah, you know This this just looks abnormal to me and 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 in that sense I, I must admit that I would say that my opinion is as good as anybody's I'm not saying that my opinion is as good as his but I'm saying my opinion about it is as good as anybody's so Oh, I think schizophrenics are great candidates for biblical counseling Because generally, after they've had a few episodes and they're off their medicine, their lives look like somebody dropped a 500-pound bomb in it. All kinds of dislocating problems associated with it. So, yes. But I can tell you this. If you're trying to talk to a schizophrenic who's psychotic and he thinks that he is Jesus Christ or he's John the Baptist, you can talk to him all day, all week, all year, and it will make absolutely no difference. And he may not even remember what you said to him once he's not that way anymore, once he's on medication. It's really... I have a whole lecture on it, and it's at gracecouncil.com if you want to go nab it, and, um, um, uh, and I say what I think about it, so. All right, here. Well, yes, go ahead. I, you know, I think that anxiety is, a, a, um, is something that biblical counseling does very well. It's worry. Uh, now, that doesn't take into account the idea that some of the medicine he might be taking might not be doing that to him as well, because it is known to do so. Some of it is, some of it isn't. Um, the um, the book that, that uh, kind of shapes my thinking about that, and it's a really good book for obsessive compulsive disorder, it's called Brain Lock by uh, Jeffrey Schwartz. Brain Lock by Jeffrey Schwartz. And in it, Schwartz says that the folks who have OCD are really anxious people, and that um, they were probably somewhat made that way, and I tend to agree with him, but they can unlearn it. And Schwartz is probably Buddhist too, and uh, not, a, not a Christian, and, um, but he works with these OCD people, and they learn how to deal with their OCD without taking medication, period. Period. And he's at UCLA. He's a psychiatrist and he's at UCLA. So I commend that book to you. Now, I've told you all that to say that probably uh, your son may have one of two things going on. Either his medication may be affecting what he uh, does, or maybe he is inclined in that direction. And that um, in, in usual circumstances, I'd certainly be working with him about how to deal with anxiety from a biblical viewpoint. All right. Then and I have to go, well, probably we have to stop. One more question and we're done. I'm sorry. Maybe we'll we'll have more time this afternoon. Uh, You know, uh, my dealing with that comes out of what I talked about in the last hour of Romans 14. I think it's really important to make sure that your um, counselee understands that taking medicine is a Christian liberty issue and it is not a right or wrong issue. And that the real concern ought to be whether the medicine actually is working and helping them, which is what I think it comes down to when you're talking about whether or not to send them back to their doctor um, for um, further, further care. Um, and, you know, that's, that's pretty much what I tell people about it. I, um, does that answer your question? Oh, okay. All right. Um, do you have another part of your question? Yeah, well, you know, most of the people that, where it becomes an issue are people who want to quit. And generally what I, I tell them is that uh, we probably won't deal with that until um, they have made it a long way down the pike in counseling, and they're actually learning to deal with the problems that got them on the medication from a biblical viewpoint uh, too. And then I send them back to their doctor, and I tell them, what you need to do is this. And if this is when they're doing really well, and I think this probably may help, um, you go back to your doctor that gave you the medicine, and you tell him this. You can say, doctor, I want to thank you for helping me when I was struggling. Uh, You put me on the medicine, and it helped. And I've been in counseling now for six months or whatever, and I've made some major changes in my life. And what I really want to know now is, do I need to continue to take this medicine the rest of my life? And could you help me arrange to take a vacation from the medicine and see how I do? And uh, usually most doctors uh, will arrange that, you know, gradually decline the dose, take them off of it, depending on what their diagnosis is. And um, um, and then and, then they can find out how they're going to do with or without it. So... That's usually what I tell people. All righty, I think it's lunchtime. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.